Good morning, everyone. If you could, go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 2 and John chapter 3. And uh, we do have, uh, there are quite a few seats open if you're wanting to come in and have a seat. So feel free to do so. Come on in if you're in the lobby and want to have a seat. Fill up these extra chairs. Go ahead. Uh, John chapter 2 and John chapter 3 will be in today. Uh, thanks again for letting uh, my family and I be gone to the Ligonier Conference last week. It was a wonderful experience. Lots of great speakers. If you did not get to listen uh, live, you can find it on Ligonier Ministries on YouTube. And you can pull up all the great teaching from Sinclair Ferguson and Bodie Bauckham was also there. And uh, just a lot, a lot of good teachers, a lot of good preachers. Very enjoyable time. Uh, John chapter 2 and John chapter 3, again, is where we'll be at today. And just to kind of review to catch you guys up and to catch me up. Last time we were together, we had uh, where Jesus cleanses the temple, starting back there in chapter 2, verse 13, and uh, just kind of reviewing as quickly as we can. A lot was unfolding there, but you have the epicenter, the uh, climactic event of the Jewish calendar, which is the Passover event. It is a required feast where every person of the household, of the Jewish households, at least a man of the household had to go back to Jerusalem, no matter where they lived, for this celebration. It was a massive pilgrimage of people back there. It was one of the highest uh, times of population in Jerusalem. Jesus goes into the temple, and instead of being a place of prayer, and remember, they're coming there with sacrifices. They should be in contemplation of their sin and the holiness of God and in prayer, but instead, it's a, it's a marketplace. And it's not just a marketplace, but the marketplace has invaded the temple grounds. There's animals being sold there, whereas before, there used to be across the Kidron Valley held over there where animals could be purchased. Now the high priest had moved it all into the temple area. It seems to be like a big organized crime business thing going on, money changing where you can give, you can buy uh, your offer, you can put in offerings or you can buy the sacrifices, but it has to be in their currency and they're upcharging everyone. So Jesus walks in, sees all of this, uh, overturns the tables, drives the animals out, etc. And uh, we also noted there where John uh, looks at that and says later they recalled, and he quotes from the Psalms that from David, that he will have a zeal for his father's house and tying Jesus back in. Remember, John is giving us more and more information as you go along in the book of John. At John chapter 1, you have like seven titles. John chapter 2, more titles, more descriptions are given. Uh, we have Jesus who is the bridegroom over there in John chapter 2. Now, Jesus is the greater David. Then he goes on to say, that, talking about the temple, this temple I will destroy and raise it up in three days. That was also covered there in that same passage. What is Jesus saying there? Not only see the greater David, who has zeal for his father's house, but he is the greater temple as well. So lots of information is being added by John as the person is reading through the book of John. Um, so keep all that in mind, a lot going on there. And let's move over to John chapter 2, verse 23. We're going to read through verse 13 of chapter 3 today. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one 
can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel. Uh, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are God and you have created all things and you have revealed yourself to us. Uh, through the general creation, through everything that you have made, but also the special revelation of your word. We thank you for giving us your word today, Lord. Help us to submit to your authority by submitting to the, your spoken word, your written word that we have here for us today. Help we, us to acknowledge your sovereignty over all things, even being born again. We thank you for rescuing us. We thank you for giving us mercy, for giving us grace for doing something that we could not do, and that is making us alive when we were spiritually dead. It's in Jesus' name we pray and thank you. Amen. All right, as we look at this passage today, as you noted, we are going to do the end of chapter 2 and go into chapter 3. Uh, I mentioned this many times, but the chapter numbers are not inspired by God, all right? They are there. They are helpful. Uh, a nice gentleman put them in years and years ago, around 500 years ago. Uh, to kind of help organize, okay? But as you read through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, you see no chapter delineation. It's not like when you pick up a book and a chapter kind of resolves and then begins anew. So we see it just continues. So that's kind of what we've done here today. Uh, if you look back at verse 23 on chapter 2, look what he says here. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, and they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, to this point in the book of John, you only have one um, semi-supernatural sign, you might say, that was very private there with, with revealing of, 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 of the, when he was calling the disciples. He knew where, where one was under the, under the fig bush without anyone knowing it. And he's like, whoa, now I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And uh, so it was a very, very limited, but it was a supernatural Revelation, all right, and then we moved over to, uh, to the, where Jesus reveals himself as the ultimate bridegroom, where the bridegroom at the wedding ran out of wine, and Mary comes to Jesus as we've ran out of wine, what do we do? And Jesus provides where the earthly bridegroom could not. He is the ultimate bridegroom who always provides for his, uh, his bride, which is the church, which is us, right? So he provides sufficiently, and so we see that. And, and now, though you have the supernatural signs that begin to, it, it's such a fast eruption, 
here at the time of the Passover that John does not even bother enlisting them one by one. So it's the, the wine that was turned into, wa the water that was turned into wine uh, that is laid out there for us in detail, but now it's just grouped together. If you look back at verse 23, signs is in the plural, when they saw the signs. His public ministry, the public uh, awareness of these supernatural signs is now growing significantly, and it's all tied in with this specific time, the time of the Passover. Now, why would Jesus have chosen this specific time to perform signs? And again, this was the prime time. This would be in just a few years when Jesus would die and be put on the cross and be in front of all these people that they're seeing the signs that he is doing. And just a few years down the road, his signs would only be more and more and more and more. Yet these same people who are wanting signs, seeing the signs, are also going to be the very ones who cry, crucify, crucify, crucify him, right? So we see that this is, the Passover feast is a huge deal. Uh, we would consider it, you know, like, like media would, the prime time on the Jewish calendar where everyone is there to witness Jesus. The temple is full of, of uh, it's, it's estimated it could be up to 100,000 people around Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, that, that he's clearing out the temple. That happens. The Jewish leaders come to him and say, by what authority do you do these things? And then between that, when he cleanses the temple, and now when John picks up, he has performed many supernatural signs uh, to validate, substantiate who he is and the message that he is bringing. And biblically, we've covered this quite a bit, but just as a reminder, uh, we find that supernatural signs do not cause right belief, but reveal whether the person witnessing the sign has right or wrong belief. Keep that in mind. Oftentimes you hear people today, it's like, oh, if I could just perform miracles, and, and uh, then people would believe. And we don't find that in the Bible, actually, all right? Uh, we find quite the opposite. The, the supernatural signs could be performed in a group of thousands of people, as we'll look at one instance here in John chapter 6, uh, thousands upon thousands, maybe five up to 20,000 in John chapter 6 witnessed the supernatural feeding of Jesus from just a couple of loaves and, 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 and the fish, and yet how many are left at the end of that? Just 12 disciples, and really one of them is not either, right? So only 11 out of all those thousands after they've seen those signs. So what we're looking at is Jesus is performing signs, supernatural signs, at the time of the Passover. Again, the key time, the prime time, word spreads more quickly than any other time. And so they, it's established. People know who he is. They know what he's done. No one else has cleansed the temple. This is huge. That word spreads quickly. Now he's performing signs. And we have to remember, again, signs are not, it's not like you open the book of Genesis, close with the book of Revelation, and signs, supernatural signs from God, are equally distributed on every page. That's not the way it works at all. Uh, there are specific climactical events, times in the Bible where God allows or, or, or gives his new messenger, like Moses rises up, right? And he empowers him for supernatural signs that, that validate who he is as sent from God and validate the message that he is bringing from God, all right? Then we look at like Elisha and Elijah. You have seven miracles and 14 miracles. Then you get to Jesus, and it's been this silent time, uh, 400 years of just no revelation, special direct revelation from God, no angelic visits from angels. Then the New Testament opens up, 
And it's just Jesus, and it's God just validating him. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of David. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Word made flesh. This is the Bridegroom, right? This is the Greater David. This is the Temple, and he's bringing the Gospel by which men must be saved by. And just to prove that he's not just making this up, God is like, look what he is doing, right? Look what he, how he's empowered to do all these things. Turn with me to John chapter 6, and let's look at this example real quick. Considering this, that miracles, supernatural signs. And I like the word signs. Sometimes we use miracles. Miracles is fine, but the actual word that John uses throughout his gospel is the word sign. And I think that works better in describing what a miracle is. It is a sign from God that is meant to direct you to the person and to the message of that person. So it's like a road sign. Road sign says stop, you're supposed to stop. Some of you roll, you're supposed to stop, all right? But it says something, right? Uh, and, and it directs you. So do these signs. When Jesus is performing these signs, it is a sign from God. Look at him. Listen to him. John chapter 6, and um, let's just look at verse 66, sorry, through 69. 66 through 69. Uh, Anthony preached on this, I think, last year. Did a great job with this. But uh, John 6, 66 through 69, just kind of hit the, hit the highlight here. You have the young man who's gotten five loaves of, loaves of bread, two fish, and if they're counting only the men, which the theologians vary, it could be around 5,000. If, if, they're, if, they're if they're only including heads of household, which is kind of common at that time, there could be up, upwards to 20,000 total people represented by this number. But either way, 5,000, 20,000, there's a massive number of people there. And they gather the five little loaves, which loaves were kind of individual servings, little bitty loaves, and they would have two fish. And that was it, kind of like a sardine, all right? And that would be it to feed all of those people. Now, Jesus feeds all of them. The supernatural sign happens for all of them to see. And uh, they want to keep coming back to Jesus for this food. Jesus leaves them, crosses the lake. They chase him down over there, and they're wanting more. They want more, more. Because what happens after a few hours after you eat? You get hungry again. So it's like, hey, we need this Jesus to give us more food. And this, is, this is like the first fast food restaurant, right? Well, well take that back. You got manna and the quail with Moses, right? So you have man, the manna and the quail, which Jesus brings up here. It's like, hey, I gave this to you supernaturally there, supernaturally here. Connect the dots. I am from God. Listen to my message. But then he reveals that, hey, I am the actual true manna and it's my blood and my flesh that you must eat for salvation and all these thousands of people that have gathered for more Jesus we want more Jesus and they're believing in Jesus we'll get to this in a minute they all turn and leave look at verse 66 after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him and these were the ones that were pretty close all right not the 12 but some pretty close ones, the disciples here, they're students. They had been with him listening. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him. Pay close attention to what Simon says. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So you have Simon 
who saw the same signs as all these thousands of people. They ate the same fish, they ate the same bread, and yet the thousands of people leave. Uh, Simon stays. He believes in Jesus for the right reasons. What are the reasons that he gives? It's because of who Jesus is and because of his words. Look back at that last uh, 68 through 69. Uh, Peter recognized that. Whom shall we go? Like, there is no one else. You are the word made flesh. You are God. You are the rabbi. You are the teacher. You is the only, well, who else shall we go, right? There is no one else to go to. In other words, it is exclusive. Jesus truly is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. They are acknowledging that. All right, and then he says, you have the words of eternal life. It's where else are you going to go? Who else can you turn to? There's no one with that authority. There's also no one else with the message that we need to hear that will give us eternal life. So you go verse 69, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One from God. So there's a big difference here. In, in chapter 6, uh, both these people groups are acknowledged as believing, but there is a difference in true belief and false belief, and that is revealed in the context of this passage. Peter truly believes that Jesus is the Holy One from God, that he has the authority from God exclusively. Who else shall they go to? And that it's his words that must be believed. So Peter is there not just for the fast food, not just for the, the fish and bread. He is there for the person and the teaching of Christ. This becomes important as we look at the passage that we're going to look at here today. Uh, look back over at John chapter 2, verse 23. 2, verse 23. And you notice that, that very similar to John chapter 6 and multiple times in John, these in verse 23 uh, supposedly believed. There you see, many believed in his name. Uh, so this belief, though, is not going to be proven to be true belief, similar to the massive feeding there that we looked at in John chapter 6. And this point can be very confusing to us today because we usually don't use the word belief and leave it kind of open for clarification. John will use the word belief or believed and then the, the, how you determine whether or not it's true belief or false belief is determined by the context of the passage. So instead of just saying they believed falsely or they believed spuriously or they were a false convert, he doesn't necessarily put all that there. He'll just say belief, right? So how do you know which belief he's talking about in chapter 2, verse 23? Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, he believed in his name. It's only going to be by context. So that's when you read the next couple of verses. So which one is he talking about here? Look at verse 24 and verse 25. But when Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, uh, for he himself knew what was in man. So here you have uh, Jesus laying out that it is... What is that? There is not a true belief. How do they? How is John saying that? How, what's the context? Because Jesus knows what is in them, and he's not going to entrust himself to them. He knows that they want more signs. 
Similar to the people want more fish, who does not want to see a supernatural sign? This is wonderful. This is awesome. Where else do we go like this? There's no TVs anywhere, right? There's, no, there's nothing to go else to go entertain us. And we have a supernatural signs from God. We believe, we believe, we believe. But do they believe that Jesus is exclusively the authority from heaven? Do they believe that he is the Holy One sent from God? Do they believe in the message that he is bringing, right? And that's when we begin to see Jesus knew the men. He knew their hearts. He knew it was inside each and every one of them. So they were coming to Jesus for the wrong reasons. Uh, do people come to Jesus for the wrong reasons today? Yes, obviously, right? And that's what we need to wrestle with some of this too. We see that people believed in Jesus, yet Jesus knew their hearts, and it was not true belief. Oftentimes, everyone that we, that, that, that we know believes in Jesus to some degree, right? And we have to be careful not to acknowledge that every person and every belief in Jesus is a saving belief in Jesus. Even in chapter 1, as we looked at, uh, many people deny that Jesus is God, right? Mormons deny that Jesus is God. Jehovah Witnesses deny that Jesus is God. Muslims deny that Jesus is God, but they say Jesus, right? Uh, that's not the right Jesus. That's not true saving belief. But then even in just, just modern, uh, postmodern culture, you might say, that we have now where people say they believe in Jesus, even though they're not part of one of those major groups, they still just don't believe in the full, true Jesus. They don't believe he exclusively has the, the gospel, the message from God, that he is truly man, that he is truly God, that he is the Christ, the Holy One from God. They don't believe in all that he is. So this is what we have to be careful today as we examine and talk to people. If you just go to a relative you have not seen in six years, say, hey, I just really have a burden for you, I just want to know, do you believe in Jesus? And they say, yes. Oh, good. Whew. Glad that's off my back. All right, let's go have lunch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's, you probably need to be more probing than that, right? Like, what is that belief that you have in Jesus? Because I don't have that power, and most likely you do not have that power, to see and pierce into someone's soul and know if they have true belief. Now, the Bible has given us external signs that we can look for, you know, uh, the, if the, if they're, the belief is truly, are they walking in obedience? Do they desire to be amongst believers? Is that love of God, the love of others there? Uh, are they confessing of sins, etc.? Uh, but we don't know. We can't pierce that heart like that. So when when we're concerned about someone's belief, talk about that. Like, tell me about your belief in Jesus, right? And if they'd say, oh, this dude, you know, he died and... and uh, and uh, 2,000 years ago, and uh, I think that's about it, something like that, right? And that's like, that's not the gospel. That's not saving faith, right? So uh, we don't want to get confused in grouping all people who say, I believe in Jesus, as this being saving faith in Jesus. They need the gospel. All right, and uh, also, as you think on this, it's very popular today for people to come to Jesus for the wrong reasons, just like it was there. I mean, you got think about how hard food preparation is now versus 2,000 years ago, all right? Like, there, I mean, there's bread and fish automatically upon the command of Christ. This is amazing. I mean, there is, there's nothing like that happening anywhere around. They wanted more of that. 
They wanted the entertainment of signs being done, but they were believing in Jesus for the wrong reasons. People still come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. You can probably think of people even in your mind, right? They, they might come because they want, they want Jesus to make their marriage better. They want more money. They want more wealth. They want more health, prosperity. All those things are very common today. Come to Jesus. He'll give you divine health, wealth, and prosperity and fix all your problems, right? And, it's, and then they, they come to Jesus for what Jesus can give them. Their problems still remain, and they abandon Jesus. Why? Because they came to Jesus for what he could give them. Not salvation, not the words of eternal life, but temporary fixes in life. And when they didn't get their temporary needs met, they abandoned him. Just like we're going to find as we go through the book of John. When people don't get their temporary fixes fixed, they abandon Jesus. What's that reveal? It reveals this was not true faith. And this is an important question. Uh, not only did Jesus know the hearts of all those around him, uh, but he knows your heart, right? He knows my heart as well. So we don't just, just want to think of back then, but even right now, right? God knows all things right now. He knows your heart. Have you come to Jesus for the right reasons? Have you come to Jesus because of who he is? Because he has the words of life. That's something that each person needs to think on. Do I, I do believe in Jesus. Do I believe in the real Jesus, the person of Jesus, who is God and man? Do I believe in him for the right reasons? Is this true saving faith, saving belief that I have? So consider those things. Uh, move on to, to uh, chapter 3. Let's look at verse 1. And the ending of 2 to verse 1 and 3 is just a natural, easy flow. Uh, he, knew the, he knows the hearts of all men. All those that were there before him, and he left them because they were believing in him for the wrong reasons. And then he goes directly into a man, a specific example, that he knows the heart of. He knows what's in him. That man is Nicodemus. Look at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. All right, well, Paul's right there. Um, God knows the heart. He knows all hearts. He knows this heart of Nicodemus. He knows your heart, right? Who is Nicodemus? We know some about Nicodemus. And we know, first off, there's a verse tells us that he is a Pharisee. Pharisees are a group of, you might call them holy rollers, all right? They were concerned about the purity of Israel, and they developed during this intertestamental time between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. Uh, they uh, originally seemed like perhaps had some good motivation uh, to get back to the law of God and the rules of God, but over time it, it seemed to be quickly, it turned into a self-righteous religion of marking the boxes, X and Y and Z, and then I will, I will, I will earn my way into heaven. That's what we're talking about, self-righteous religion. Instead of relying on the grace and the mercy of God, it became, look what I can do, look what I can accomplish, look at all the things that I am doing. So it's turned into a self-righteous religion. Uh, you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two major parties of the day that, that, organized, that ran the temple. They had their teachers, they had their scribes, they had some varying, varying points that differentiated them. Kind of like church denominations or something like that today, to be simple. Uh, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees uh, were, were known for all these rules, all these regulations. They, in general, had a high exterior uh, moral 
aptitude, as far as their morals and ethics were very high, at least on the outside. Jesus later, of course, says, you're like whitewashed tombs. What's that mean? You got dead, rotten bones on the inside, right? But outwardly, you look white and nice and clean. So that's what he tells, says about the Pharisees. Their outside rule-keeping looked really good. But again, Jesus knew the heart. So you have Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee. Uh, you also have uh, the fact that he is a ruler there in verse 1. Uh, what does he rule? Well, he is one of, when he's announced as a ruler, he's one of the 71 who make up the official ruling body of the Jewish people, of the temple, of the synagogues, of all things religious. It is the Sanhedrin. Going back to the days of Moses where the 70 elders uh, went up to to. Uh, meet with God, right? So they've taken that forward. They, they decided that would be their, their rule for the nation. And there were these 70 ruling people plus the high priest is 71. And so he is a Pharisee, not just is he a Pharisee, but he is one of those rulers who rules over the people. And also, number three, we see that he is one of the primary teachers of the Sanhedrin. And that we just gathered we gather here toward the end of this section we're going to read today so that he is a Pharisee, he is a ruler, he's in the Sanhedrin, and he is not just a Pharisee, not just on the Sanhedrin, but Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Jerusalem. In other words, he's not just a teacher, he is one of, if not the primary. So he's, he's very important, a teacher in the Sanhedrin, all right? So this is who Nicodemus is. Uh, number two, let's look at verse two. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So we see here that he's come to Jesus by night. Some, some make a big deal of this, some do not, but I think it is significant that at this point in the story of John, you have Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, what does that do? It, it acts as great camouflage. It great it counts for great hiding, right? He could come to Jesus. The other Pharisees, uh, the other Sanhedrin would not know about this meeting that he has with Jesus. It could have been an attempt to be undercover, secretly probing without others knowing. And we'll get to some of that in a moment because Nicodemus is mentioned two other times in the book of John. But by the end of the book of John, it's broad daylight that Nicodemus comes to receive, to get, to ask for the body of Jesus. And he's unashamed, completely unashamed. So it's a beautiful story, and we'll, we'll touch on that a little today, but it's, it's just amazing. Here he comes to Jesus at night, secretively, but by the end, it's bold. So bold, all the other disciples have left, and uh, Nicodemus comes, right? So anyway, we see that, uh, that there is some good acknowledgement of Jesus here in, in verse 2. Uh, Nicodemus does refer to him as rabbi. That's interesting. He says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. And how does Nicodemus know this? Look at there. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So signs were used by God to authenticate his messenger and to validate the message of the messenger. So, so far... It, Nicodemus is rightly seeing Jesus as a person sent from God. He has a message that he is teaching and that these signs are validating him and the 
the message that he is bringing. Now, this is a huge, a huge difference from what the rest of the Sanhedrin thought about Jesus, right? Uh, if you think of like Mark, Mark 3, verse 22, as Jesus is talking to uh, the scribes and the Pharisees there, look what they say about Jesus. They are, are they acknowledging that he is doing these signs because he is sent from God? They connect the dots a different direction completely, diametrically opposed to Nicodemus's perception. Uh, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he, speaking of Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. So that's quite the contrary. Nicodemus is coming by night saying, hey, rabbi, teacher, we know you're sent from God, because, or else you couldn't do these supernatural signs. Uh, here in Mark chapter 3, the, the higher-ups are looking at Jesus saying, it is by the power of Satan that he is actually doing these things. Uh, turn over to John chapter 7, verse 45 through 52. Look at this example as well. You have the higher-ups, most likely many in the Sanhedrin, who are at this little encounter, uh, Nicodemus being one of them. And look at this, uh, verses 45 through 52. Of course, we'll eventually get to John chapter 7, spend more time on it, but I just want to kind of connect the dots back to where we're at today as far as these, these Pharisees and what many, most of them uh, did believe. And you think of Pharisees, who's, the, who's outside of this, the primary Pharisee that we see in the New Testament is Paul. And what's Paul all about doing? He's all about killing and arresting and going home to home and dragging these people out who even, even mentioned the name of Christ. And all of it, stoning Stephen, etc. That's at the heart of the Pharisees, all right? Look at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Speaking of Jesus, they were supposed to arrest him, bring him back. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? So this is important. Again, their heart is being revealed here through their words that those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, who is the Son of God, who is the Son of David, uh, they believe, those people who, might, who believe that, they are deceived. Look at verse 48. The establishment of authority here. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? This is a rhetorical question back to them. We are the ones who determine true belief and who is truly sent from God. Have any of us believed in him? Then you surely don't have the right to believe in him unless we tell you. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the power they have. They determine what's right and wrong belief according to them. Uh, look at verse... Uh, uh, 49, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So here they accompany deception and accursed with those who believe that Jesus truly is who he says he is. Now, here comes Nicodemus for the second or the third time that he's going to be mentioned in the book of John. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, that's what we're looking at today, and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So here, Nicodemus doesn't take this huge stand like he does at the end of the, end of the Gospel of John, but he simply just calls for right justice to be applied. 
They are already wanting to arrest him. They're, they're wanting to get him off the streets. They want to kill him early on. And Nicodemus is saying, hey, uh, um, let's, is it right to judge a person before we hear them? And what do they do? Like he just he just slightly putting a toe in the water. Okay, they're they're ready to get him right then. He just say, hey, let's 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 look at how justice should be done, and they turn on him right away and they mock him. They say, "Are you from Galilee also?" This is Galileans were 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 redneck country bumpkins, uneducated. All right, they were. This was the making fun of them of him, saying, "Are you one? Are you from Galilee also?" and that's all the only encounter we get here. So that also leads me to think that Nicodemus came to Jesus that night to avoid some of that that he was going to face uh, coming to Jesus. All right. Look over at verse three. All right. Jesus answered him. Truly, true. Oh, sorry. Uh, John chapter three, verse three. So from so from this so far, we see the fair other Pharisees were saying that. Jesus is doing these signs by the power of Satan, that those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah are deceived and they are accursed, and they're also establishing their authority. We are the ones in authority. All right, now move verse 3, chapter 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what question did Nicodemus ask that deserved this answer? And if you look back, there's not one. And this is a perfect example of Jesus knowing every man and Jesus knowing Nicodemus and knowing the heart of Nicodemus. There is no question asked. So why did Jesus answer Nicodemus like this? Because he knew his heart and he knew directly what he was coming to ask. And per perhaps it was about how do I how does one enter into the kingdom of God? It's a very similar encounter to the rich young ruler that came to Jesus. And uh, how about how to enter the kingdom of God? Then he brags on himself about all that he has done. Right. So that was most likely something like that was going to go on here. How do you how can a person be sure they're going to enter the kingdom of God? But the question is not even asked, and Jesus just answers it. So we see that Jesus knows what is in his heart. And Jesus gives him an answer that is, that is so foreign to Pharisaism, to the Pharisees, to their beliefs. Instead of saying, okay, well, what all have you done so far? And let's see if you've done enough. Or you know what? You need to do one or two more things or a little bit more work over here. Or, or could have, he could have been just saying, Stamp approval on me. We see you doing these signs. You're definitely from God. I am a Pharisee. The purity of the law is what I represent. I have a high moral standard. I am a, I am a governor a governing a person here in the Sanhedrin. I am the teacher of the Jews. Just go ahead and state my approval, right? But he does the opposite of that. And he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So how does Jesus destroy Nicodemus? Self-righteousness and self-reliant, uh, a works-based religion. Uh, he does it by revealing that Nicodemus had complete inability to do what was necessary to enter into the kingdom of God. He, he pulls the reins away from him. This is, I mean, self-righteousness, self-reliance, uh, Pharisees like Nicodemus, while doing all these things, and then God will surely let me in. And Jesus says, absolutely not. 
In fact, it's not even up to you. It's up to the Holy Spirit. And unless you are born again, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. This is huge. All the good things that he had done in his mind, right? Paul, a Pharisee who is, of course, saved later in John chapter 3, says Your works of, our works of righteousness are like filthy rags. There's nothing we can do good. There's nothing we can do to deserve to earn our way into heaven. All of the good things that we do in life, you pile them all up, and they're filthy, disgusting rags, right? Later on, Paul comes to Christ and says all that he has done, all that he did to climb the Pharisaic ladder and to listen to all the teaching, do all these things, it was rubbish. It was absolutely trash compared to where he is in, at now with Christ Jesus. So here you see Jesus laying these things out. It's not about all these rules and regulations that you have created. It's not about what you can do. It's about what God can do. And this is really, really important for us to even consider all the good things that that, uh, that Nicodemus had done mattered not. And the same goes for us as well. Uh, how are you going to enter the kingdom of God? Uh, if you immediately go to thinking, oh, well, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, then that's not a good sign. Uh, your focus of your belief should be on the Holy One of God. Your focus, your object of belief should be on Jesus Christ and what he has done to accomplish salvation. It should not be, you should not find great rest and ultimate comfort in your works, but it should be the work of Jesus Christ, right? He is the Savior. He is the gospel. Now, um, he says here in this passage, uh, verse 3, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, Nicodemus would have to be born again, and if he was not, he would not enter the kingdom of God, nor would he even have a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Now, most likely, uh, this is referring to Jesus being there, God in the flesh. This is the good news. I mean, he is the object of the gospel, right? Uh, look at Mark 1, 14 through 15. As far as seeing the gospel, all those who see the kingdom of God are going to enter into the kingdom of God. But Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God, much less enter into it. So uh, what is seeing the kingdom of God? Apparently, it is a, it is a supernatural, has to do with being born again, regeneration, where you have right belief and right repentance, and God opens your eyes to see who Jesus Christ truly is. Mark 1, 14 through 15 is a good example of this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he ties this together, right? It's, it's the kingdom of God is tied in with who Jesus is and the, the message that he is bringing and the repenting and believing. All of these are coming together. To see the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Jesus is that object of salvation. So it is today, even if a person, if a person does not see Jesus as the entry point to the kingdom of God, then they are certainly not going to enter the kingdom of God. They must see him for who he truly is, or they're not going to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, verse 4, chapter 3. 
Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb, his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. All right, here we have this again, this you cannot, and unless a man is born again, right? It's, it's, you cannot do these things on your own accord. And here he mentions uh, born of water and spirit. Some have uh, believed that it's talking about a natural birth versus, versus supernatural birth. It really t seems like letting scripture interpret scripture that is still talking of water and spirit is not contrasting those two things, but speaking of the same supernatural birth. We'll give you an example. Look over at Ezekiel. Hard to find. Take your time. Ezekiel 36, verse 25 through 27. And we'll see where the water and spirit are combined together. And they're not talking, it's not talking about a natural birth, natural processes there, versus spiritual, supernatural, but all in the same so Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Looking at this all as one thing. That Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Uh, the prophet says this has to do with the new covenant that is coming. Jesus is that new covenant uh, messenger. That he, it's in his blood that he will make the new covenant for us. But look what it says in verse 25. The prophet says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. These are the words of God. From the, the prophet is speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. All right, so, and the point of this is uh, God combines water and spirit in this passage just as Jesus does over here in John chapter 3. So it seems to be speaking of one and the same. This supernatural born againness that has to do with washing away, washing our sins, cleansing us, right? And it's a quite a stretch, but turn all the way over to Titus chapter 3. Not hermeneutically, but just in your Bibles, it's a stretch. Go to Titus chapter 3, verse 5 through 8. And we'll see something very similar. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 through 8. Titus 3, verse 5 through 8. You see something very similar where Jesus is, again, or, or the, the word of God is combining uh, washing and not distinguishing like, oh, this is water, this is the spirit, but it's more of an analogy of what's going on. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. This speaks very well to the text that we're looking at today as Nicodemus comes. Like, behold, look at my righteousness. And Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God, right? All right, so here he says, uh, Paul says, And he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of of regeneration, regeneration and born again. This is speaking of the same thing. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
So again, just looking at that Ezekiel example, this Ezekiel uh, the example over here in Titus, going back to John chapter 3, this, this, uh, this water and spirit being born again, you have to have both in order to enter the kingdom of God. It is two, but yet it's one and the same. All right, the same thing that when a person is born again, when they are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they are the, the symbolicness here is they're washed. They're cleansed of their filthiness. They're given a new heart now. All right. All right. So that's what we're looking at in that passage. Now look over at verse 6, John chapter 3. Turn back there with me. John chapter 3. Keep that in mind. In John chapter 3, verse 6, he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And here he, he, again, is just removing all the self-reliance off of Nicodemus. You've come to me with what you can do. I'm telling you, you cannot do this. Unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God, much less enter it, right? Unless you're born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God or even see the kingdom of God. And in verse 6, he removes all possibility. There is no earthly, humanly way for one's flesh to accomplish what I am talking about here today. He removes it completely, categorically different, Nicodemus, than what you're trying to do with self-righteousness and self-religion and doing all these things. I am saying it's all the way, it's completely foreign. You cannot accomplish it. No flesh could do enough to get into the kingdom of God. Look what he says. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Is a big distinguishing mark here. All right, look at verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What's he saying? He's saying the same thing that he's been saying since Jesus answered the question, and now he sees, perceives, knows the heart of Nicodemus, the heart of Nicodemus is marveling. This is a way of saying pontificating, pondering. Uh, he, he is mesmerized by this answer. It is not what he expected. He expected, look, you're doing a good job. Keep that work up, buddy, and you're going to make it into the kingdom of God. Instead, it's no. Whatever you have done is insufficient. Whatever you have done is of the flesh. Whatever you have done will not get you into the kingdom of God. It is by the pure mercy and the pure grace of God that you would get there. And is unless you're born again, and look at the analogy that he uses here. The analogy is compared to wind. The wind blows where it wishes. Wow, you must be born again, it says. And then verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, Jesus chooses this analogy to further reveal that salvation belongs to God alone by comparing the work of the Spirit to the wind. The wind, especially then, was a mystery and certainly not controllable by anyone. It did what it wanted to do. Uh, the wind blows. The wind does what wind wants to do. It operates without human permission or human counsel. So it is with the work of the Spirit upon those who are born again. Again, Jesus is removing this self-reliance and saying salvation is all, 100% of God. That's it. 
It's 100%. That We often use that word monergistic. It is one working. It is all of God. So regeneration, being born again, is the sovereign action of God upon a person that guarantees their entrance into the kingdom of God and that God causes Holy Spirit birthing again, regenerating a person where they see the beauty of Christ. And this, if you are saved, this has happened to you. Like you, you might have grown up in a church, you might have believed in Jesus, but at some point along the way, you believed in Jesus. And it was more than just a further commitment to obey him further. It was a supernatural birthing again, regenerating, where you saw the person work of Jesus and you left your self-reliance be home. You knew it was about how many times you could go to church, how good of a person that you are, and what you could do to get there. You realize, as you should, I can't get there on my own. There's nothing I can do, and God made you aware of that. He opened your eyes to see the beauty of the cross, the beauty of Christ, the beauty of what he has done, and the filthiness of what you thought you could do to get there. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? He is still marveling, and he wants to know what, how, what can I do? I just came for a little what more, what can I do? How can these things be? And in verse 10, Jesus answered him, you are the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things. And it, it, this is a fantastic place to go because this is, this is the opposite of much modern day evangelism. Uh, you know, if a modern day evangelist was looking at this, it would be like, oh, Jesus, you got him right where you want him. Just tell him to say the prayer. Right? I mean, it's all right there. Just say the words. Ask me into your heart, Nicodemus. This is where it all happens. And I'll come in there. And it's a, it, you can see it's, it's all set up perfectly there. But Jesus does not do that. And, and, and Nicodemus is like, how can these things be? Like, I can't control the wind. How can I control the spirit? And he's marveling. How can these things be? And again, you see that God is sovereign. And it's God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over the wind, and God is sovereign over the Holy Spirit, and God is sovereign over regeneration. It is a supernatural act by God done upon a person, and that person is not controlling or doing what he can do to get that, all right? And so Nicodemus asked that question, how can these things be? Jesus answered, you should understand. You should know this. He's the teacher of Israel. He should have looked back at Ezekiel and several other places in the Old Testament to understand, hey, God is sovereign over all things and definitely salvation. Look at verse 11 through 13 and we'll wrap up. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So here at this time, we see that Nicodemus is not uh, receiving the testimony. There in verse 11, uh, we wonder, is, is he saved not right now? Is he not saved right now? Does he have true belief in Jesus right now? Does he not have true belief in Jesus right now? It seems, you know, just looking at the text, that he has come to Jesus with a belief in Jesus. I mean, he knows Jesus is standing right in front of him. His name is Jesus. Uh, he sees him as a person. He acknowledges that he's doing supernatural signs, that he's been sent from God. But yet in verse 11, he does not receive the testimony, uh, that, that message of the messenger that has been sent from God. And, and then in verse 13, 
Look how Jesus establishes his authority. Like he's already acknowledged, Nicodemus, you're a Pharisee, you're a ruler, you're a, the teacher of the Jews, but guess what? My authority is even greater. I have come from heaven. This is huge. Jesus says, look at verse 13, no one, again, this is exclusive. He is from heaven. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. The ultimate rabbi, the ultimate teacher, the ultimate one that is truly in charge of God's house is Jesus Christ. Even though Nicodemus is a teacher, Jesus is the teacher with ultimate authority given to him by God. And even though Nicodemus has come from the temple in Jerusalem to talk to Jesus, Jesus has come from the temple in heaven to talk to man. And you see this contrasting, right? Anyway, all right, as we end, all belief in Jesus is not saving belief. Keep this in mind. Then, as we read through the book of John and even today, all belief is not saving belief. We need to be aware of that fact uh, today. As many who profess to be, to be Christians because they have a belief in Jesus, it may not be for the right reasons. And this goes for us personally as well. Evaluate. Make sure that you have a true belief in Jesus, the person and work of Christ for your salvation. We also need to acknowledge that salvation is of the Lord. Uh, Nicodemus, nor you, uh, had or have the ability in and of yourself to be born again. What is of the flesh is of the flesh. What is of the spirit is of the spirit. Unless the Holy Spirit births you again, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit gets full credit for regeneration, leaving us no room for self-righteous pride. And I would say if today you think this, I just, I don't like that. I don't like that God supernaturally has the right to birth me again and regenerate me. I think it's something that I can do. That's not a good place to be, right? <laughs> that is not good. And if you're trying to describe to yourself what only God can do, that's a bad sign. Uh, if you are today saying, I thank God for doing what I could not do, that is a good place to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have indeed uh, birthed again, given regeneration uh, to all those who are here and listening today who have been saved. And we thank you, God, for accomplishing what we could not accomplish. May we never look to our own self-righteous deeds and take pride and be arrogant, thinking that our holiness should be rewarded by you and that we should gain access into heaven by what we perceive as holiness, but help us to see our filthiness. Help us to see our sin. Help us to see the dirt that needs to be cleansed and washed off, that can only be washed off by you. And help us to, to, to truly take rest in the person and the work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. Even us who are saved, help us not to go back into taking rest in our works, but help us to constantly be looking to Jesus and resting in his righteousness. We thank you, God, that you have accomplished what we could not do, we could not erase or wash away one single sin, but yet through the work of Jesus Christ, you have cleansed us from all sin. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, we have new hearts that have been washed, that have been cleansed. We have been born again, and we thank you that we have salvation. We thank you that we see the kingdom of God. We thank you that we will enter into the full kingdom of God one day. 
that we have that only Jesus has the words of eternal life, that he is the Holy One sent from God, and help our faith to be fully in him always for our salvation. And it's in his name we